RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Friday morning at RCR is our morning for the political panel. And this morning, joining me is Olivia Pearson with a lovely new headset. Good morning, Paul. And a nice sounding microphone. Good morning, Olivia. Marie Buskey in for Cam Slater this week. Hi, Marie. Hi. And oh, that voice. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon. And and from the panelled room, Marty Gibson with the old microphone as well. Hi, Marty. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Okay, let's get straight into it. It's got to be BlackRock first up. Who wants to start? Uh, I shall. Um, BlackRock, yes. So BlackRock's $2 billion fund for ESG, which I I call ESG, engineering social god-awfulness. Look, New Zealand is not going to be the first country to uh, go 100% renewable energy resources because that gross dishonour has already gone to Sri Lanka. Remember which claimed that um, that title, that inglorious title, um, until it got completely economically collapsed in 2021, um, Sri Lanka was the first country to destroy itself by going green. Um, They're in the worst financial crisis in 70 years. And they've basically run out of food, medicine and fuel. So, you know, New Zealand flirting with this 100 percent, you know, energy, uh, green energy uh, future is just, you know, you just need to look at places like Sri Lanka to sort of get a handle on what this might be. Is that where the disinformation guy comes from? Uh, yes, yes, that is the oh. Tamil. Yeah, yes, he's a Tamil um, okay. from there. So, but look, I mean, patients in Sri Lanka are unable to travel to hospitals due to the fuel shortages and the food prices are just soaring. Um, they ran out of rice in their supermarkets. Can you imagine an Asian country running out of rice? Um, and that was only a few weeks after their former president, um, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, banned the use of all synthetic fertilizers and pesticides to farmers. So scarcity sent food prices through the roof and farmers who couldn't make uh, the green transition, and many couldn't, um, have let one third of the country's farmland lie fallow. So BlackRock um, investing in green energy, bad, bad idea. Um, Getting back to BlackRock, in 2014, Sri Lanka had Um, a fund manager from BlackRock called Gordon Fraser, who spoke up for investment in Sri Lanka at the London Investment Forum, where he made an (laughs) objective assessment of Sri Lanka and its prospects and challenges. He said in this great speech to the London Forum, "Um, it is only in the past 18 months that we have put serious capital to work. And that is why I would say now is an excellent time to invest in Sri Lanka. He went on to say, I'm very positive about the outlook of the Sri Lankan economy. Um, We find valuations in Sri Lanka quite attractive. For instance, banks are uh, a very, very good prospect. Therefore, in our opinion, banks are a very cheap way to get exposure to Sri Lanka's development. Um, He also added that I believe the long-term prospects are among the most attractive in the frontier universe, that's emerging economies. The frontier universe? Yeah. What planet are these people on? Oh, I know. Therefore, we view Sri Lanka as a compelling place to invest. And then he said, it is set for an upswing. Sri Lanka is adding port capacity to leverage its position on east-west shipment routes, developing itself into a transshipment hub. Well, now, that was 2014 when he was luring, this was BlackRock, luring more investment to Sri Lanka, which of course is now completely collapsed. Now, nine out of 10 Sri Lankan families have to skip meals to make their food budgets last every week. Wow. And there have been many stories about people dying while they wait in line to get fuel into their cars due to the summer heat. Um, but don't well, that worry. aged well, right? That aged really well. Oh, that aged so well. Um, yeah, I mean, according to BlackRock's big fund manager for Sri Lanka, Mr. Fraser, it says it'll be a very attractive option for investment, just like New Zealand apparently is now. Um, 
I wouldn't trust BlackRock's opinion on anything considering their overriding commitment to corporate uh, social responsibility scores and engineering social god-awfulness, otherwise known as ESGs. Um, New Zealand, under a deep red Labour government and BlackRock, is a marriage made in the smelly, sulfuric intestines of hell. Whoa. I mean, could I be any clearer about how, you know, this is... Um, The technology needed to transfer to green does not even exist, um, not at a national uh, building level. Um, So too many patents that could really be an answer have been shelved and go dark at the patent office level. The whole system is controlled, and we all know that companies like BlackRock are neck deep in the fossil fuel industry. So they clutch at the controls of all the technology, and they don't want anything. So what's the game? What's the game here? Is it even about renewable energy? It's just a way of getting in and owning a country. Because remember, they want 16, New Zealand says it wants $16 billion of investment, and this is just the first No, New Zealand doesn't say that. The government says it. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. No, no. This, the, this good entire distinction. thing to me has a whiff of a Ponzi scheme about it. Yeah. You know, let's build it all up, um, create this scheme. I mean, it feels like, you know, Occupy Wall Street all over again, and even the crashes that led to the Great Depression. Build it all up, build this investment in under a false pretense collapse the economy, and then swoop in and exactly. buy everything up on a fire sale. Disaster, I, disaster capitalism. I think I mean, you're what are your to thoughts, it. Marty? Well, my thought is always or often about what's not in the paper, just the absolute silence that, uh, well, firstly, the reason we're so close to zero carbon energy is because of our hydro uh, schemes. And it was the fact that we had such... Um, clean energy that was used by James Shaw to justify including our agriculture in uh, our Paris Accord agreements, despite agriculture being uh, exempt from them. So if you look at what it's costing us to include agriculture, it's about $2 billion a year, which is about what BlackRock's uh, promising. We don't hear anything at all about old uh, Chippy being a young global leader. Uh, or BlackRock being a major uh, uh, controller of the World Economic Forum. So, you know, again, maybe those are all good things. Mm. And there's also the house of cards, too, that we're sitting on from an agricultural perspective. I mean, we've got the fact that more uh, land has now been freed up. There was a little bit of a slowdown last year in terms of putting land into trees, but more land is going into trees. A lot of these farmers are getting of a certain age. These boomers are wanting to get out. They don't have uh, legacies that they can pass these farms on to. So they are essentially taking these offers up to go into carpet farming for companies via the likes of investment companies of Vanguard and BlackRock for people like IKEA. So then you're taking that productive element off the board in this country. Now you've got dairy farming that's been complied up to the wazoo in terms of compliance costs to actually even get the milk out of the cows. And I think the uh, last number I heard, in order for them to break even, they need to be getting $8 per kilo in milk solids, and they've just downgraded the forecast to, what, 7 seven twenty five yeah. or something? So it's costing them money to actually get that off the, off the play. That wool, I mean, don't even get me started yeah. on wool. That's, that's you know, you, you put all of these elements together and then you throw that BlackRock deal over the top of it. To me, this is this is just a disaster waiting to happen. What about Our the point? The sector is very, very precariously. Put. What about just going out and doing something like that? No consultation, no putting it to the people. Yeah. Nothing. Well, no. it was consultation, but it was uh, between klaus and chippy yeah, and i have well, I, I torture myself uh imagining their phone calls the same as i used to do with ardern you know sort of chippy you are my little ginger hobbit quietly <laughs> undeterminedly marching the ring of nationalism to be destroyed in mount doom i have Remember penetrated your cabinet before we penetrated the cabinet yeah <laughs> no one understands how powerful and resolute you are they only see the sausage rolls once the little beady abused eyes Oh dear, don't give Marty any power, anybody. When sausage rolls. <laughs> now and then oh. will endanger your slip on the ring of tough talking nationalism to be invisible, but you will get there in the end. You will save the World Economic Forum Shire. 
Well, speaking of saving the world, um, the Defender, you know, the Defender, the Children's Health Defence, wrote an excellent article in June uh, 2021. So we're going back a little bit, but it was called Who Owns Big Pharma and Big Media? And in it, Dr. Joseph McCullough wrote the power. He was talking about Vanguard and specifically BlackRock. And he said, the power of these two companies is beyond your imagination. Not only do they own a large part of the stocks of nearly all big companies, but also the stocks of all the investors in those companies. That gives them a complete monopoly. Um, a Bloomberg a Bloomberg report states that both these companies in the year 2028 together will have investments in, a, in the amount of $20 trillion, which means that they will own almost everything. Crikey, um, including Pfizer, right? Well, the, the me- well, they already have the media that was and the, That was the sharp end of the spear right there. Yeah, yeah. But that that's they've already got that. So, um Look, what what they do, I mean, remember, BlackRock makes sure that it invests wherever it can in energy, oil and gas, transportation, food and finance. So that's every single necessity that we need. Um, And they undermine competition through owning shares in competing companies. So they own Pepsi as well as Coke. You know, Um, they blur the boundaries between private capital and government affairs by working closely with the regulators. So that's what New Zealand will. That's what you'll find is that BlackRock BlackRock will be consulting on all the regulations for this green energy deal. It's basically our Green New Deal, isn't it? Um, Although we're already halfway there. And this would have started with Jacinda Ardern's visit to BlackRock. Oh, yeah. Well, that was where she cut it. Yeah, that's now acknowledged. So Chippy's following on from Jacinda. Who's and, my little and, hobbit? And remember when remember when Jacinda came out of that deal and she took her mask off? Yeah. Um, I wish she kept it on. Um, and it she on, said yeah. that um, they the, the, the person asked her, um, can I ask what what were you talking about? What was in the in the negotiations or whatever she was doing? And she said, Oh, we were just talking about sustainability. It's all about sustainability. She just kept using that word. So sustainability is green fascism, but we know this, don't we, folks? Well, we also know that Marxist student politicians aren't really that well equipped to do negotiations with those cold-blooded psychopathic. No, they'd be hopelessly out of there. Can you um, imagine? They're screens and keyboards. The important thing, though, is, is, yeah, and the important thing, too, is to remember that the people do have power, even from a commercial level. And you just need to look across to what's happened to Anheuser-Busch in the United States. I mean, they have lost billions of dollars off their price after the Mulvaney affair, which, again, was a whole motivated by ESG. There's no other reason why that company would go so off-piste and so off-brand by doing uh, and a deal with Mulvaney and having them in as, as an influencer to the point now that this week Anheuser Busch are now selling off eight of their key brands in order to refinance. Now all of that has been driven by the power of the people, and the people said, "No, we don't want this." So you know there is power in, in what it is that we do. Yeah, but how but can you say no to this, Marie? Well, oh, you can wh- say no to this by applying pressure to the likes of people who are coming into government, uh, the likes of whoever the coalition or whatever is going to be, and say, no, we're not having this. We're not doing this. And we need to actually have a united voice on doing that. And whether or not that is um, something like a Netherlands-type situation with the farmers, I mean, the farmers are the ones that around this issue, I think, are really going to have to rise up. Um, quite significantly, because there is still a lot of money tied up in farming, and they don't want this collapsing just yet. And I think that they need to, we need to get that voice out there. People need to know, though, don't they? And in the media coverage that I've seen, apart from here, um, that um, the the journos are like uh, possums in the headlight. They don't know anything. No. They don't know even what to ask. There is whiffs now. You can see whiffs in the mainstream media that they realise that things aren't as they seem. As Neil Oliver always says, this isn't about what they say it is about. And you can see that now. I think the grip of that public interest journalism fund isn't quite as grappled as it once was. NZME shares are tanking. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they and stuff have held a is it a training in the last couple of days in terms, I think a, a, around treaty and and with Willie. Yeah, in Wellington. But NZDMA have not sent anybody. Okay, so that's a that's a sign. Let's tell. Yeah, yeah. It is TVNZ it is a tell. had made a fifteen million dollar loss, so they're on the slide. Okay. Yeah. So they're all indications. And um, I mean, we're going to get onto polls and, and other things later, but there are all these little tells out there. The sad part is, is what wakes people up is when it hits their wallets. And I think the really concerning thing is, is what Olivia described in Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have an element of Sri Lanka oh, in this dear. country in order for people to wake up completely. So I, I do get this feeling that things are going to get worse. Is it going to be as bad as when the subsidies came off in the 80s and farmers were walking off their farms? and suicides were through the roof. I really hope that's not the case, but it could be, it, particularly yeah. dairy. Well, I mean, it, 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 it it's been easy to, to keep the economy looking far better than it is by that $200 billion or $100 billion that Robbo's borrowed. And I, I got suspicious, and you and I talked about this when Moody's came along and said, it's fine. Nothing to see no, here. Nothing to see here. And then you go back for. to the criticisms of Moody's uh, during the American housing crisis, and the criticism was, well, they're kind of working for the lenders. I wonder if Moody's working for the people who borrowed, uh, loaned us that, 200, that hundred billion, and, and they're they're doing the hey, it's fine, we won't give you a downgrade, carry on. I think it's clear that it's companies like BlackRock and Vanguard that are the basis of the fascist system we're getting that's pushing us toward a social credit system. Catherine Austin Fitz, um, are you familiar with her work? Mm. No. No, um, she has always been on this because she believes that there's 21 trillion, there's more than that, according to her, but 21 trillion that she can account for um, that's missing out of the American economy. Um, and she was the one that always ha has done many, many speeches and articles on um, what she what they is termed the going direct reset. And the going direct reset is the real reset. And they had their meeting on August 22nd, 2019 um, in America. And that was the Fed meeting with BlackRock. It was organized by BlackRock. Um, and it was all the central banks and the Federal Reserve basically um, taking over the economies. They have more power, these companies, than governments do. Well, they well, owed more than... National uh, economies than the total value of the U.S. economy, and and you know you can call, say BlackRock, Vanguard, you know, but there are one or two banking families that that own and control those organisations, and and because they can't claim assets against their money, they can they're claiming what they can claim, which is power over people. Lots and lots and lots of power. The thing that makes me sick is how sneakily how how. Just like everything we've seen, it's always done for your good. There's always this great idea for you, you people, and you've just got to go along with it. And yet, meanwhile, it funds and orchestrates the destruction of our beautiful, free, once free, liberal democracy. I see that um, you mentioned polls, Marie. I see that yeah. in the latest uh, Curia poll, preferred prime minister, old Chrissy Hipkiss has had a bit of a bump. So how do we explain that? Or is that just a, an anomaly? Oh, look, I had a, yeah, I mean, the Curia poll um, just came out very late yesterday, so that's the pot off the press. There's also been a Guardian poll uh, out of a new poll out of Australia that's come out. The thing with these polls, there's so many of them, you can look at them, but the biggest thing is a trend. You want to look at a trend. And I tend not to look at who the preferred prime minister is because people tend not to vote based on an individual person. They will tend to vote based on a party. Or Why based even on... ask that question then, eh? Oh, you know what? I, th I think personally, I think it's a vanity question. It's a vanity question. It's a question to create uh, more minutes in a news cycle. But seriously, how could he get, how could he get that rating with a voice like that? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just, I've actually just—it's not even a real man's voice. I'm sorry, it's not. Uh, are we talking uh, Hipkins, Luxon, or both? Well, we're talking okay. both. Well, well, I mean, yeah, so I mean, he's—he's—he's he's had a wee bounce up. So you're looking at Luxon and um, Hipkins and Luxon both on. Uh, he's up two points to twenty-five percent. Christopher Luxon is up five points to twenty-five percent. So half the country 
wants one or the other. So one quarter of the country likes one, one quarter of the country likes the other. To be honest with you, you know, what this says to me is how low this is. Most well, people... When you, when you look at the who thinks New Zealand... Sorry, Mary. That's when you look okay. at who's going in the wrong... Who thinks New Zealand's going in the wrong direction, it's down a bit from a high of 68.5 in July, but it's now 60% think New Zealand's going in the wrong direction. Well, essentially two-thirds of the country think. And I did hear... I only heard it very briefly today with Jamie... Mac, um, sorry, yesterday with Jamie Mackay and uh, farmers... The number for farmers, 98%. 98% we're going in the wrong I'm direction. I'm almost certain of that. Yeah, someone in the That's uh, virtually I know every we've farmer. Got farmers that listen to us. So you can check that, but I, I know that there is a poll out with farmers and it's huge. They are not happy. They're not they voting really... green uh, Labour to keep the Greens out again then? No. I was, no, was, was going to say, I wonder how much of those very unhappy farmers voted for Jacinda in the last election. Because yeah, well. I have very little sympathy for those people. So I went and did a little bit of a, you know, back of the neck and scratch around with some of these numbers. So we've had five polls in the last month, right? So we've had Talbot Mills, Varian, Roy Morgan, Reed, uh, Reed Research, Guardian, actually six polls now counting the Curia. And what I've looked at is the sort of bouncing around. So what's the bouncing around between the, the right block and the left block for a lack of better terms in terms of looking at a trend? And it's relatively stagnant in for national, national and act, right? So the swing of numbers between, and the first poll I looked at is on the 10th of July, so a month ago. So we've had six polls in a month. So national has swung one way or another, depending on the poll. Their number has swung 3.1% in that time. Labor's number has swung 7% and not in the right direction. ACT has been 2.4, so they've been relatively stagnant. The Greens is 2, so they are relatively stagnant, and I think they're picking up some, and definitely this Curia looks, the Greens have had a bump, so I think they've picked up that disillusioned Labour. Where where does it come from, that bump, do you think? The Green bump? Yeah. Disillusioned Labour voters. Okay. Yeah, those. Isn't that that going from frying frying pan into the fire? But of course, the trend that we've all seen in the last few weeks, and the the media are going to absolutely hate this. This is now three polls on the trot that all have Winston on. Yeah, five percent, five point one, five point three. They they are going to so five point eight. In the current Curia, uh, the Guardian, which dropped uh, yesterday, they had Winston at 5.3. You had Reed Research. Both there were two that came out on the first. Reed Research had him at 4.1 and Roy Morgan had him at 5. Where are the Maori Party? So the Maori Party is interesting. The Roy Morgan was the outlier in the Maori Party. They actually had a huge number back um, at the beginning of the month at 6%. If you take that number out, they are bouncing around between uh, 2.5% and 4%, but they're now the last three polls have seen them at 2.7%, 2.5%, 2.5% respectively. So their policy is now, I actually think the bump that Winston is starting to see yeah. is actually not necessarily coming from the national block, is not necessarily coming from the uh, the left block or the right block, it's coming from Te Pāri Māori, it is yeah. coming from those other minor parties, and that undecided number is starting to shrink. So people are beginning to make up their minds. It's, um, I mean, look, we've still got a few more laps before this race is over, but it is certainly starting. Have ACT lost a little bit? Well, ACT is interesting. So ACT is stagnant. ACT is stagnant. They've never recovered the highs that they had. They peaked in October, the the poll, uh, first October poll, uh, 2021. That's when they peaked. And they were peaking at about, I think the highest poll had them at 18%. And they were really looking like a serious player. And then David decided that he was only a, not a libertarian with a big L, but only a libertarian with a little L, and it was only a sometimes political thing. And he actually voted for the mandates. And, of course, if you are somebody with libertarian leanings, which I am, I was like, no, no, you cannot play the libertarian card if you're turning around to vote for legislation of any kind in the House that compels things particularly against 
uh, items that are written in the Bill of Rights. That is so, just like a hardline no. No, libertarians do not get that, Marie, because um, I was a libertarian and um, with lots of friends in the Auckland region. Lindsay was as well um, once mm. upon a time. But um, they, Peter Cresswell, who you know, has the Not PC blog and is probably one of the, mo- uh, the more well-known uh, libertarians in this country, he came down on, he hates Seymour with a passion, but he came down on exactly the same um, side as Seymour and was writing articles absolutely criticising anyone that didn't want to get the vax. And he said, in, and he said in very strong, colourful language, get out of here if you think um, anybody has been forced or coerced, forced to take a vaccine. See, I look at that, Olivia, and for me, that is like a nun saying that she's pregnant and it was an immaculate conception. I am sorry. Mm. It is, you know, you're either a libertarian or you aren't. And to come down on, I mean, both you and I probably on the same page with that. I was a fervent act supporter until that point. And the minute that happened, I was like, oh, you've done it for me, son. You've completed, that's it, been done. It's been a phenomenon in the whole world. Um, America as well with their libertarians. They made very sophisticated, or they weren't actually that sophisticated, the arguments, but they tried to make sophisticated arguments around um, the fact that, um, well, if you don't like it, you can quit your job and go and get another one. You mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing, that your employer does not owe you a job. And yet my line was always, they are violating bodily autonomy. Oh, come on, that has to be the basis for libertarian thought. And also informed consent. You know, when you come from a medical yeah. background, informed consent is everything. Mm. So, and you're not even allowed to exercise informed consent. And of course, now with these polls and what we're starting to see with the ACT Party is uh, they've taken on almost a American-type fervor. I mean, we last week we had David, I'm not going to work with Winston Peters, boom, and then by dinner time, he'd rolled that back to. Oh, I won't consider it. <laughs> Why are they doing hit job billboards yeah. on Winston? Then they're obviously well, feeling because insecure. they're scared. They're yeah. feeling yeah. I think well, they're they scared. have to lose one seat, don't they? Act to New Zealand first, and suddenly he is the kingmaker. So they're really wanting to head that off at the pass. And they're sitting in the last three polls have had that 61, 61, 61, 61. Mm. and that's tenuous. <laughs> You know, really, when you think about it, and at the mo- so based on the Curia poll, Winston sitting there with seven seats. Well, you know, it only takes in a few more points in the percentage points on the board. That seven will turn to nine. That nine could turn to twelve. That's Seymour running attack ads on Winston Peters with the billboards and such is just such a silly thing to do, as it shows you that Winston is constantly looming very large in his own goofy head. Seymour's goofy head, that is. And remember, um, yeah, you just mentioned it, how, you know, after the interview with Sean Plunkett, uh, Seymour was bleating on and on and on about Winston Peters and how he will not be working with him and or New Zealand first. And then he had to do that walk back that you just mentioned, Marie, um, and said, well, you know, we won't work with anyone if they've got cabinet positions. Uh, meanwhile, the same day, uh, Winston was asked about working with ACT, and Winston's response was masterclass-level communication, and he said, I'm not going to conduct negotiations through the media. Yeah. And that such restraint with that one-liner made Seymour look like a squealy little girl. Do you know what well, it did is, say though? silly little schoolboy games. Too. Is when, so yes. I don't know whether you remember this, but when Winston got that, what was it, three and a half percent of the last election he was out. And David Seymour, I mean, I have never seen anybody dance on a grave so fast as David Seymour. He was so excited by this because he has fancied himself as the media soundbite guy. And I mean, that's always been Winston. He's always been the guy that the media have gone to because they can know that they can get that three to five seconds of quick and pithy and fantastic, and it makes for good telly or radio. And Winston's always guaranteed, like you said, I'm not going to conduct uh, negotiations through the media. He he has them. He's there. Yeah. And I think David Foundley finally thought that, you know, the mantle had been passed. He's got it. That's him now. He started, he's been trying to position himself in this. Well, he doesn't want the old dog back in the fight. I, I've got a back, I've got a background in advertising uh, for quite some years, and it seemed to me that the billboard that we're talking about, and that's Winston with a big smile, and you won't be fooled again, which is, sounds like a Who song to me. It does. It actually looks like it's promoting Winston. Not. Yeah. It, it doesn't look like a negative. That is a advertising one hundred and one fail. 
And mm. also the other one with that too, for having a background in advertising as well, is that you, when it comes to stuff like this, you never play the man, you always play the ball. You know, features tell, benefit sell. Marty says this time and time and time again. I, I'd no, love so to Axe know. So Axe just given NZ first some of their advertising budget. Thank you. Well, and whoever and whoever did this for them, if they were using an agency, you know, you'd fire know, them, is, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, this is basic stuff. Hmm. In, in watching everything that's happened though over the last three years, I see Winston Peters as very much representing populism, and Seymour representing globalism. Um, populism, of course, includes economic nationalism. And that's very smart. Um, Winston has said he regrets his stance on the vaccines of 2021 and has furthered his convictions around this problematic topic by calling for a full COVID inquiry. Um, He seems to be learning and taking in new information and altering as he goes from his previous stance, Um, whereas Seymour hasn't learned anything and just keeps doubling down um, with globalist narratives. Um, He knows he looked he took an anti-freedom stance while he was at Parliament, obeying Jacinda like a good little cuck. Um, I mean, he still he still thinks that there's not even the excess mortality going on in New Zealand um, when there clearly is. Uh, and I think that um, Winston knows that everything has to be examined because the information that we were, that New Zealand was given was deeply distorted, whereas Seymour just wants the issue to go away because he was part of that totalitarianism um, that we all had to cope with. So I see it as Peter's the populist versus Seymour the globalist, um, and that's not a good position for Seymour. It really isn't. Mm. Yeah, especially with the excess deaths uh, hovering around 25%, according to some, I think, OACD data. And, you know, that's only because we're about 90 days behind the rest of the world in uh, in uh, taking the old safe and effective. Um, the run-up to the election is going to be a white-knuckle ride for him, for Seymour, having that stance. Not just him. Yeah. Well, yeah. A whole bunch of them. Well, I mean, a lot of the freedom movement still haven't forgiven Winston Peters for his stance and also giving us Jacinda in the first place. And that's understandable. But the fact that Winston has managed to attract people like Kirsten Murphitt, um as as candidates, and there's another one who, I'm sorry, I've forgotten their name. Uh, doctor, oh, right? Casey Casey Costello? Uh, no, yeah. someone that was a doctor, oh, I believe. Do, I, oh, yeah. Democracy NZ candidate, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm really sorry I've forgotten their name. My bad, but I... Yeah, but uh, Winston attracting these kind of candidates where none of these people would go near uh, Seymour with a barge pole. So what do we say about Matt King? Back to those polls quickly. They, and and we've been hit hard with our social media, a lot of um, Democracy NZ people are are, are climbing on and and making the case. They're done, aren't they? He's done. Well, I I mean, Cam's not here, so I'll say it. Hopium. Uh, you know, <laughs> but it looked like they might have had something, but they didn't look. And this is the thing, you know, it's it is sometimes a case of good guys can't come last. And I did a, a piece, uh, a monologue a few or several weeks back now, uh, using the analogy of the scorpion and the frog. And we just got to remember that all of these politicians especially the ones that, in order to be effective, they've got to be in the tent, they've got to be in the house, right? And if they're not there, they're just they're vapors on the outside, and they're all scorpions. Winston's a scorpion. He's the biggest scorpion that we've got in this country. He's been at it for forty odd years. The trick is is actually figuring out how is it that we're going to set a new direction. Um, how and we can see that now that there's an appetite again for smaller parties in this country. The one positive that we do have about our system is it's not that difficult to swing around those smaller parties from one election to the next. I mean, we forget that, you know, it was not that long ago that New Zealand First held more than half the Māori seats, for example. And there's lots of swing there. Hana Tamaki is, you know, running in one one of those Māori seats. She probably won't get over the line this election, but you know what? Having spoken to her, she's tenacious. She's yeah. really tenacious. And if she sticks at it, this is now what her second, third election she's been doing it. She keeps plugging away in those mighty electorates. They're only, you're only talking about 30, 35,000 odd registered voters in those elections. You're not having to swing that many people to get a seat. 
I wonder if draft once they're swinging. If Dr. Michelle Warren is the name you're look, you're looking for before Olivia. Oh, thank you, Marty. I wonder if uh, Muldoon's prediction, if this could ever happen, come true when he said, I think it was in '79 or '80, that Winston Peters would be the first Maori Prime Minister of New Zealand. Well, stranger things have happened. Well, if I was a Maori, I would vote for Winston Peters. I don't think it's going to happen, but I just do remember Sir, Sir Rob saying that back in the day. Yeah, you know. he did say that. I, I read that last week as well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All but right. You can say it in the right voice, though, Paul. Well, I, I can talk like Sir Rob. Yeah, it's better. Get your hands out of your pockets when I'm talking to you. <laughs> Used to be able to do it better. I think, um, who was it? One of those McPhail and um, uh, McPhail was good at that, wasn't he? He was good at oh, the Oh, brilliant. No, Danny Gosh, Faye. I miss them. Danny Faye. He was incredible. He sounded more like Muldoon than Muldoon. <laughs> I used to know Danny and he would ring up in the Muldoon voice. A couple of times I thought it was Muldoon calling me. <laughs> really? He was incredible. He did a good yeah. Winston as well. He's long gone, <laughs> passed away a long time. Danny Faye, people remember him. He did a version of My Way in Muldoon's voice. Oh, and really? now I the end that. is near. Yeah, yeah. I that do remember him. that. All right, speaking of national, uh, Sir Rob, um, this policy, um, what banning cell phones in schools, is that the one that, that we've got up here? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's me. And I've actually, I'm going to co-opt you in on some of this, Marty, because this is some ground you and I have covered before. I've pulled this out because... They react to policies. Somebody needs to have a woodshed chat with the policymakers in the National Party for these reactive policies. They started the, the Marie, this- they've been listening to me. That's oh. what I said two weeks ago. If I was there, I would ban phones. He's been listening to me. Well, <laughs> see, this is the thing. I, I don't necessarily, I don't believe it's the government's or the politician's job in order to ban cell phones at schools. I mean, my boys are at a school. They don't allow cell phone use during, actually, both the schools the boys have been at. Um, during class time. I think I actually believe that that's up to the schools, not up to the government. I think Mm. we've got to be careful when any party comes out saying we're going to ban this, we're going to do this, we're going to take control, because all we're doing is setting a precedent for more controls, for more things all the time. Do I agree that they're a distraction in schools? Yes, I do. Do they need to have them there while they're, you know, during interview interval and all the rest of it? No, they shouldn't. It should be in your bag or not even at school. I wonder how the teachers bear it. How do the teachers bear it? Well, thirty kids in front of you on their phones. Well, I know in the school that as you're trying to teach them about gender. Well, the go home and drink two bottles of wine. But this is comes down to do it at school. The culture of the school, right? Um, the school that my boys are at, you know, if someone, if, if a boy's out on his phone in class, that phone's gone and you pick it up from the office on, on your way out at the end of the day. Okay. So um, it's already happening, basically. Yes. Yes. So what's so, he on about? Well, this, but this is reactionary, though. This is, try, I think he's trying to score points in order to get votes. It's Ooh, he's like such a nice policy. man, they'll say. Is that what he's after? But it's like the gang policy, you know, banning patches and uh, insignia and, and, and clothing and, and not allowing to gangs to gather, the people like that together. Now, I know they he launched that right after Reporiki and he was like, oh, yes, 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 that's a good idea, good idea. But what constitutes a gang? What constitutes a gang? Well, that's just it. I mean, the will guides. they then turn around and say, oh, people doing a pop-up on a corner with VFF with blue and green T-shirts on, oh, they're wearing gangings, that's a gang. They're wearing gang insignia and they're inciting, um, you know, movements. That needs to be shut down. You always need to look at these yeah. things when the barn door swings the other way. Yeah, banning, got- banning is a um, childish, uh, banning it in legislation is just... Government well, giving it a not. That's just pure nanny state, and we don't need more of that. I mean, no. yes, it's up to the schools. I mean, well, he's not and, calling for the banning of guns, and people are getting shot to death in downtown Auckland every damn well, week. So you can, go, you can go into someone's house without a search warrant and grab a gun if <clears> they are identified as a member of gang. So, you know, again, what Marie's saying about the barn door, <clears> you know, that's uh, it'd be useful to all sorts of people to be able to do that. And you look at education. I mean. Where is the discussion around the sorry state of the curriculum? He's saying let's ban the cell phones in the schools. Yeah. Look, that's fine. But the curriculum that they're being taught at the moment, um, I would have thought you would start there. Oh, no. They started out with promise saying we want an hour more reading and an hour more maths. Great. 
But let's look at the quality of the maths. Let's look at the quality of the reading. Where's the history? The focus groups aren't telling them that, obviously. Didn't they yeah. say something today about requiring that at school they require that they spend at least one hour a day on writing, reading, or maths? Was that national? I think that it was. That was national. That was at the beginning of the, <clears throat> the campaign. One hour? Yeah, one hour. One hour. I thought, You'd be man, surprised how little they do. They yeah. Do. Yeah. They mustn't be doing anything much. Crikey, one hour. One hour amount, a day. And the amount of self-directed learning that they do, and self-directed learning is fine for some kids but not good for others. Yeah. yeah. I mean, gosh, it's school's well, not like what, what a it's like. A bit later on in this show, it. I'm going to be talking to some kids who have done some homeschool self-directed learning and done incredibly. So that doesn't fit for everyone, just saying. Well, no, no it's, a, it's with a structure, though, isn't it? Mm, and, mm. You know, there's some great schools um, doing things which are turning out incredible results th that are uh, directed in that way. But um, whether or not you want to count on the Ministry of Education and the teachers' unions to get that right. Um, the, well, this was result, a mum who got that. Yeah, right. yeah well, mm. that, that's, uh, you know, a mum wouldn't tolerate. Uh, only one or two percent of decile one students being able to pass a basic literacy and numeracy test after 10 years in a system. Mm. Okay, then anything more to say about that? No, well, I mean, just with the gangs that you know, if, if the national are actually, actually uh, listening to us, you know, if you if you really want to um, crack down on gangs, make it easier to leave them, make some rules that anyone who intimidates someone who leaves a gang. Uh, faces stiffer penalties and de-gang the prison. So like a witness protection program available well, for people leaving. Yeah, yeah. Make it so there's not not the consequences That's for leaving. Very and also good make, point. Make yeah. some stiff penalties for anyone corrupting a child by prospecting them. Just say, look, you can sit in your clubhouse and woof all you like, but don't drag kids into it who are then going to drag the, their young underage girlfriends who are then going to be given pee and molested by these. Horrible thugs. Mm. That's very sensible. Very sensible. Wow. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, we might flick back to um, the international scene in a moment, but I think this fits. Um, we're on to Grant Robertson now. I'm looking here at a TVNZ story. Not possible to make big promises this election, Robertson says. So no lolly scramble. Oh, dear. Yeah, well, well, been... I, I saw that, and it, it just struck me how um, how uh, much it it echoed Cullen's uh, saying just before John Key took power. We've spent the lot, you know. And and Marie and I spoke about this um, in the last couple of shows. New Zealanders be shocked if they really got to fully appreciate how nothing Labor's doing is for New Zealand. It's all for Labor. You know, and and they they and you know you've got Grant Robertson saying, um, you know that that no one's going to be able to promise anything. You know, we've spent the lot. Um, wow. <laughs> okay. Well, he's just given five hundred uh, million to the Reserve Bank to defend the currency. So you had that. Well, that's where it's all coming from: is the people who print the money. The people who print the money have BlackRock and Vanguard immediately downstream of them. <laughs> You know, it, it's uh, that's where it's all um, originating from. What about the talk of this hole, this fiscal hole, twenty to thirty billion? Do you think there's anything in that? Yeah, I think there is definitely something in there, and I mean they're madly trying to cover it up, and you know, but it's a bit like these potholes that we have, you know, here on the Napier Tarpo. It depends on how deep that pothole is, and they will be doing their very very best, I think, before the prefu comes out to actually make that pothole look as shallow as it possibly can. But yeah, I think there is. I think they have, and they've now just announced these two big settlements with uh, the teachers and the nurses and midwives. They claim that they're pulling the, the spending from elsewhere, but that was spending that they had to borrow and print anyway. Is the timing so, of that relevant? Well, I well, look, you've got to keep the base happy, Paul. I mean, let's face it, you don't want to be upsetting them too much uh, before you head into an election. You know that they're leaving in droves already. The, you know, the polls have told you that. Okay, then. Yeah, um, who would have thought you put a bunch of Marxist student politicians, uh, <laughs> give them a credit card, and they're not responsible with it. But it, it, that goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, Marie, 
it's disaster capitalism. Everything's going to devalue. It'll end up being bankrupt. And then big companies like BlackRock will sweep in and own everything. And the next, they'll own your country. It'll, China and and China in, in, in the East. Oh, yes, but you'll be very happy. Very brain controlled. With my little hobbit. <laughs> I, I fear I won't love it. <laughs> I think I'm going to be pretty grumpy. Minimum. All right, before we wind up, let's... Um, um, I'm sure, Olivia, you have a view on this. Um, the Trump indictments, um, what we've found out from Devin Archer, Hunter Biden, downstream of that. Um, well, I mean, that's just... Something's got to give that, sometime I, soon. I think that, um, well, Trump's probably going to have to go to trial next year and then he'll get dis- he'll be able to use disclosure and... Yeah, but they've trashed power. all the documents, he's saying. Which documents? Well, you know, the, 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 the stuff that he would subpoena has been destroyed, he's saying. Well, they're going to get to him every which way they can, but there are processes where that stuff can be retrieved, I'm sure, if it, if it has to be. But you're not going to take Trump down easily, especially when, what, he has a 69% approval rate or uh, yeah. a, a wish, uh, you know, wish for the next, the people want him as the next president and those kind of numbers. Um, and I mean, this is just going to go on and on and on through the election, but good luck getting that man because he's very clever. There's been you think they'll very... pull the pin on Biden? Yeah, they will. How long but do you I, think he's I, got? I think they're stuck because they. Well, he's on they... holiday for 10 days. No, they're trying to keep Biden in there for as long as they possibly can because, you know, um, there's no obvious way to get rid of him without getting that cackling hyena, Kamala, um, and nobody has any confidence in her at all. Um, so I just don't think they're going to keep uh, Biden in there. I mean, they haven't parachuted Devin, uh, what's his name? Gavin Newsom, Newsom in there um, yet. But I really, I think they're in a pickle. I think they're in disarray. And Trump has become more and more powerful. So it's a very interesting time but remember they're nowhere near election year yet it is within the year though well no they're they're within primary season so the and the elections and i mean as olivia knows things uh, things can change dramatically from when the primary goes out to to when the election happens so i think it's still they're all jossing around and trying to i mean the democratic uh primary is so dull i mean obviously they want to keep Biden there like Bernie at weekend at Bernie. But they can't. Yeah. Well, it's they've, got all the, they've got all the payments. They've got all the receipts that, you know, it's It's, it's, it's only treason, dull on the man. Democrat side, though. The, the, the Republican side is full of really good people, you know, Vivek and, and others. But, oh, there's treason involved. Absolutely. I mean, that, that word is not used more. I, I know treason has a very specific meaning in the – U.S. Constitution, so it's not actually. Yeah, it's treason. a warfare. It's, it's sedition. Uh, context, yeah, sedition. It's more sedition. Yeah. So I did. I did see a meme uh, this morning, which which said that you know the problem isn't that Biden's a, uh, a corrupt, senile pedophile. The problem is that Democrats know and don't care. Yeah, that's yes, freaky. That's, that's true. I I you know. I wrote an article about, it feels like 10 years ago, it was probably about six years ago, but it was titled, um, The Left is the Enemy of the Free World. And I really meant that. Um, They are not, and haven't been for a long time, pro any kind of liberty and freedom. Um, They, they, basically, they're scumbags. Um, They have a very low view of humanity. Um, They are certainly... Um, they're but not, not proud of themselves, of Olivia. This is the thing: low view of humanity, but not of themselves. Well, I mean, it's just abject narcissism. Look at that Megan Rapinoe thing. You know, that doesn't stand for her national anthem. Smiles um, when she misses the goal. Yeah, but I mean, th- th- this is classic. These sporting people. You see that one American girl standing there singing her heart out. It makes me cry every time I watch it because, you know, she loves her country. She's proud to be there. And then these other things with pink and blue and green hair, um, can't even be bothered to stand for the national anthem. I mean, that shows you how much they hate America. And it gave them everything they've got. It gave them everything they have. Yeah, I know. 
Every, this is the thing. These ideologies and this um, cultural Marxism can only survive in an era in an environment of absolute affluence, which the Americans have had. And yeah. actually, Marty coined a really good term uh, this past week. What was it? Parasitic, a parasitic kindness. Parasitic compassion. <laughs> a parasitic compassion. Yeah, that's a good one. It's but, really but, interesting to to think all the ways that people's minds have been messed with. You know, the other way, I know. you know, we've we've got naturally evolved uh, sensitivities to someone saying, hey, this is a problem. And what they've done is they've overloaded us with, hey, this is a problem. Hey, mm. so, you know, when you actually hear the alarm, uh, no one does anything. What's worse, they say, hey, if someone's sounding the alarm about this, they're a racist, you know, insert your own... Uh, Adjective. Well, what you, yes, it's a blitzkrieg of problems that you yeah. don't know which one to look at or see coming first, second or third. Um, I always go back, Marie, to the founding fathers, especially to Jefferson and um, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. They were very clear in their writings that this experiment, this self-governance experiment of freedom and individuality could only work on a virtuous republic republic on a virtuous virtuous population basically if you had a population with no virtue goodbye free, freedom will just make them stuff everything up and it's quite sad to see that come around um and that's why um regardless of people's beliefs this attack on christianity the all mm. the time really really bugs me because it was the christian philosophy that the seeds of liberty were sprinkled into and took root nowhere else that was you know that's the attack on virtue yeah uh, yeah well virtue became twee didn't it and old-fashioned and silly um and now we see actually how important it was but the other thing is is that i've read enough um cicero at the time when they were when you know he saw them lose the roman republic um just quickly before his execution um, and he was really, really sad about it. And he was writing, trying to get the philosophers of Greece and Rome into the modern Roman vernacular. He was translating it from Greek into Latin so that people could understand where they'd gotten their ideas from, which was all Athens. All of it was from Athens. Um, the whole Roman Republic idea was from Athens. Um, Cicero knew that. And I remember he complained, where have all the men of virtue gone? Um, they only had the outline and the form of what once was noble. Um, and then, of course, they got empire and it limped on for about another 500 years. So these things can happen. Here's a policy idea for national, a little bit of classical studies and history in every single curriculum instead of te ao Māori oh, in wouldn't science. That, wouldn't that be like, dying, be like dying and going to heaven? Well, well I did suggest. And kids um, would love it. On the chat, that maybe Reality Check Radio needs to make some uh, deprogramming content for kids. Just well, hey, you do it. Getting yeah. told this. Yeah, have a think about this. All right. Well, we're pretty well out of time. And just remember that um, Joe Biden thinks the Grand Canyon is the ninth wonder of the world. So we can just remember that. So I don't know what the other That's the other one yeah. is over the number seven thank you so much guys for coming in on the political panel again here at rcr uh olivia uh, marty and marie it was great thank you great. Paul. have a great morning paul okay and we'll do it all again next friday here at rcr all right Thanks. see you later bye. bye bye rcr with paul brennan reality check radio